Hello, everyone. A warm welcome back to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to explore the highest in human potential, both at an individual level, family level, community, humanity level. And we do that by dissolving distinctions and boundaries in order for us to be able to, through the cross currents, make new insights and possibilities emerge. It is a great pleasure for me to have in our midst um, Angela Duckworth. Let me take a moment to introduce her and then we will invite her you know, into our midst as well. So Angela is a pioneering psychologist and a best-selling author of a book on grit. This is a book that has been critically acclaimed for the manner in which it is helping advance our understanding or what it truly takes to create success and meaning in life. She has had a TED talk that is among the most viewed of all times, reflecting therefore on the hunger in humanity for ideas and learnings like this. She's also the founder and CEO of Character Lab, who is on a mission as a team to advance uh, scientific insights that can help children thrive. She's an award-winning professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she participates, among others, in this initiative on behavior change for good, as well as the um, People Analytics Program at the Wharton School. Uh, she's founded a summer school in the past for underserved kids that has been translated into a Harvard Kennedy School case study, featured on all leading media, a very visible voice on the breakthroughs coming out in psychology today, a MacArthur Fellow from 2013. She has advised a number of notable institutions in advancing their culture. And um, on that note, let's uh, bring Angela into our midst. Angela, Hi. thank you. <laughs> Hello. It is, um, it is so nice to have you. Thank you for making the time for our community here. I want to start by thanking you at, at a deeper level, at a more personal level, because uh, here's the thing. When I was in, um, in, in high school and I was uh, contemplating my major for college, I had two loves at that time, mathematics and psychology. And I remember asking some more senior folks who I knew a couple of years into college, show me your psychology books, show me the classes you take. I'm kind of intrigued about this topic a lot. And I looked at them and it kind of like pulled me down rather than lifted me up. And so painfully, so I, I decided to kind of like go down the other path. Now I had a lot of love for mathematics and I'm, I'm grateful I made, made that journey and took me a while to unwean myself from my mathematics addiction, which I did at some point. But um, what was going on that time, which I think you were smiling about yourself, right, in this moment, is that the emphasis in psychology was so much about the dark states of the human mind, the psychology of evil, depression, and other kind of mental maladies. And, and you know, I'm grateful to all the psychologists who continue to do good work on that side of the bell curve of, like, humanity's mental states. But what about flourishing? What about intelligence? What about wisdom? What about, you know, greatness and all of those quests, which are also amply part of who we are? And that's kind of like, in a sense, like my interest, you know, lay, lay on that side. And I went a different direction. I actually went to spirituality and I was able to draw a lot from that fountain at that time. But it was always like a latent hunger in me. So when I see what was happening in the 21st century with this explosion of interest from great talent like yourself in really investing on this other side of the bell curve, it just um, made me feel so enriched and made me feel like, okay, psychology is opening its door to allow me to come in now and, and participate and engage and learn learn from you guys. So, so thank you for all the great work you're doing. Thank you, Nedra. My daughter is, um, well, one of my daughters is 19 and she is quite literally torn between applied math and a more behavioral science psychology and and um, and when I when I smiled as you shared that story I actually was trying to think of the multiple reasons why you 
might actually be a little disenchanted from having dipped your toe in the water of psychological science, you know, those decades ago, because some people would say like, oh, this is all about depression and schizophrenia and fascism. And, but there are other reasons. And I will just say for my uh, daughter's ambivalence, it's not really that so much because as you, you know, it. psychology has shifted, but more that um, psychology is also like a mile wide and an inch deep unlike economics and unlike physics and other fields. So anyway, there would be at least a couple of reasons why people might say, yeah, I'm really interested in human nature, but I'm disenchanted and don't want to go in that direction. Anyway, I'm glad that you're uh, still engaged and I'm still engaged. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've kind of awoken to it as like a late calling moment in life about 10 years ago where I was still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up after that time in, in business and with my PhD and everything. And then I realized it's in human potential. It's about human nature. I mean, there's so much at Gandhi, you know, Gandhi once said, he said, the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing would be enough to solve most of the world's problems. And I think that's what you're doing is you're helping to close those gaps. Well, thank you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think um, Gandhi and all of our great leaders are all psychologists, right? Because how could they not be? And what is more interesting or more difficult to understand than like the nature of who we are? So yeah, I'm excited to see where you take us. Well, that's itself such a beautiful quote. <laughs> what could be more exciting and powerful than the nature of who we are? Angela, I'm going to propose the following. We have a very precious amount of time together with each, each other, somewhere around, by the way, folks, about 30 to 35 minutes or so. And um, there's so much that you have done, but there's so much that you're doing today and are going to do in the years ahead. And I'd like to propose that we take just a few minutes for more of a little like a synopsis of that early breakthroughs that you've achieved around this theme of grit, because your book is there, your interviews are there. And so folks can actually go to those sources if they aren't already exposed. Although it is my assumption that many of us here are already in fact so exposed because you know, you've already taught and done so much. So could you just take a few moments to talk about like what in your life journey led you to wanting to invest so much in understanding human nature and in supporting the unfoldment of human nature, especially in children? Yeah, so I'm happy to share um, like a very, you know, fast forward express lane version of the biography that led me to the research on uh, on human achievement. Um, I um, grew up in a family and actually not just my nuclear family, but my extended family um, has a, you could either call it a healthy obsession with achievement or perhaps an unhealthy obsession with achievement, depending on your evaluation of it. But my upbringing led me to believe that, A, achievement was very, very important in life. Maybe the most important thing in life. And again, I'm not saying that was a good thing, but it was true. And then B, I, I you know, heard so often this kind of like, oh, you know, this cousin's really smart. That cousin's even smarter. And um, the implicit narrative was that achievement was very much about um, IQ and about giftedness. And the people who are really great did things kind of magically because they were different from everyone else and so much more innately capable. And I knew that that wasn't me because even in my homeroom, meaning my classroom of you know, maybe 30 kids when I was in fifth grade, so I was 10 years old. I mean, even I could look around and say like, well, those two people are smarter than I am. So what does this imply for the limit on what I could achieve? And I grew up to actually question that assumption and question that narrative and to ask the question instead, what else is there? Like how much is possible. And what I came
came to in the research on grit is that maybe hidden from view, when we see what someone eventually becomes, is the process that led them there. And what we inevitably find is not a very short, straight line journey, but a long journey with setbacks and lots of practice. And what we see about experts when we go to YouTube and we look at 14 seconds of high achievement is, is that. But what we don't see is the years where they were kind of a bumbling idiot, honestly, and, and all the mistakes and rough drafts that are are hidden. So I think grit is very much about sustained passion and perseverance over long periods, because that is the nature, I think, of human achievement that is somewhat obscured from view. But in every case that I have studied, uh, pretty much consistently the narrative. Very nice. There's a fair amount that has, uh, I think, emerged over time about the value of multiplying talent with, with effort as a way to get to really hone a craft, hone a skill. But um, one of your seminal contributions to further advancing that thinking is to recognize that, but also add to that another multiplier of effort, right? That has to do more with the kind of the long run journey, not just the immediate mastery of a skill. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, one way to think of this is like the difference between intensity and, and duration, right? Or intensity versus consistency. So when people hear the word passion or they think of hard work, maybe the mental image that comes to mind is this like crazy intensity, like, oh, you know, I just pulled three all-nighters and or I'm just like really all in, like all. And that's uh, not necessarily bad, but I think what's more indicative to me of somebody who's going to become successful what they do is the consistency and the duration of their commitment. I mean, let's use the analogy of physical therapy, right? I remember my husband recently had to go to a physical therapist and he got this set of exercises and he did them for like two hours. I think he was only supposed to do them for half an hour. It's like, oh, great. And that's intensity. But um, I think what most physical therapists want you to do is just like do these exercises every day, seven days a week for maybe forever, depending on what it is that ails you. And Luckily, I married somebody, my husband, who's like good at consistency too. But I think the intensity, which is what the word passion sounds like, is in some ways a bit of a, a red herring or a lure, because I actually think the more rare thing and the thing that chips away at a very difficult problem or builds a great corporation or makes specific change that needs to happen is more this consistency. And so many people start off with intensity and sincerity, but you ask, like, where are they a year later? How many days a week are they? thinking about it five years later? Are they still in the game 10 years later? And the answer is very often no. Yeah. I was thinking as you were speaking about my own journey with meditation. I was drawn to it when I was about 10 years old. Uh, I would do these like little small dashes of four days, especially before exams. I really wanted to like appeal to a higher power to like help me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'd be really good. And then I would like go back in my more dissipated ways. And then it was like 20 years into that journey of just like in and out, just sporadically that I finally came to the conclusion to your point that like, look, the teacher teaching path that I have been taught is like one which requires daily discipline i got to get there otherwise i'm getting nowhere i was in my early 30s at that point and i took it on as like a promise a commitment to myself for the daily work and um, the tilling of the soil and i've not looked back since it's been about 18 years now and i feel so grateful for that ultimate like place of grit that i came to one of the things that i discovered there is that um, initially i thought it was going to be like a tortured but like deep like commitment to something i really believed in and i felt that ultimately it'll take me to like the doorway of something beautiful but that it'll have to be a real effortful and torture journey yeah you weren't thinking it was going to be pleasant or fun i i, I did and then 
And then you realize that actually after a while, it starts to give you a lot of joy to be doing that. You've talked about that in your work in a much more formal way. You've studied this idea about joy being a key part of that experience. Could you, could you, could you talk about that more? There are two things that are hidden in those comments that you said or that are in those comments. I just want to highlight. I think one is that I do think that joy and you know, getting energy out of what you're doing. I mean, if you do not eventually come to that, I do not think you will be great at what you do. You know, nobody can by force of self-discipline and willpower make themselves do something as obsessively and consistently as people with real grit do. I mean, if I did not enjoy psychology, I would not be even a very good psychologist, I think, much less a great one. Same for writing, same. And by the way, there, there are things that I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy actually, for example, managing people. Like I have this nonprofit organization, but I, I don't get energy out of leading a group of people and then watching each of them grow to their potential. Now, I wish I did, but I don't. Therefore, I'd rather write about it and research it and then let somebody else actually directly manage and be the executive. So I think this idea of joy and enjoyment and energy is key. But the second thing I just want to amplify in, in what you just said is that it's not always possible for us to forecast with accuracy that which will give us joy in the future. So it could be in the very beginning years of something like music or meditation or leadership or writing or anything that you enjoy it more or less than you will in the future. And it can go both ways. You know, you start off really enjoying something and then you get into it and you're like not really getting energy out of it anymore. Or it could be the opposite as it was for you. Um, so it's not an easy rule of thumb to follow your immediate uh, experience because that may or may not be a good forecast of your future experience. But I do think at least understanding that being intrinsically fulfilled by your work is necessary, if not sufficient, to become great at it and knowing that there's always going to be a little bit of um, dynamic change there so therefore the human problem is not an easy one which is like what should I do I don't love it right now but maybe I will learn to I do love it right now but I may not always but at least you have some principles um, you know to navigate by yeah that makes good sense that makes good sense to me you have in your book talked about a framework that I really like it's something very consistent with the um, the teaching I've been doing at Columbia and at our institute, this notion of sort of growing from the inside out and then also from the outside in. I, I love that. That's a, just, just a wonderful framework. There is one component of this that I, I'd love for you to weigh on, which is weigh in on, which is that I wonder to what extent that capacity to stay true to the course that you need to in the long run, maybe in part grounded on the core beliefs or convictions you have about life, about your philosophy of life, about what you're being placed here on this earth to be and to do and to serve and all of that. I don't know, have you, have you, have you explored that domain at all? So Tendra, I think you know that I teach an undergraduate course um, at my university. I'm just, what, two hours driving south of where you are. I'm at University of Pennsylvania and um, I just finished teaching this semester and this course is called Grit Lab. And I had um, a little over a hundred students all between the ages of 18 and 22. Actually, I threw in a few high school students in there. So I'd say 16 to 22. And they're all asking this question, like, how do I, like, like, what do I do? And like, what's my recommendation prescriptively as a, as somebody who studies human development? Like what, what do I say to them? Right. About how to, now I want to correct an error that for about, I don't know how long I've been preaching that the way to be gritty is to have a goal hierarchy where you have a top level goal. Like for me, use psychological science, 
to help children thrive. It's a top level goal. And then I have sort of 10 year goals and then five year sub goals. And then I have, you know, all the way down to like my to do list for today. And it's a hierarchy where each of the sub goals serves a master goal, which serves a map. You know, so very beautiful. So it sounds like you could have a map for the next two decades if you're super gritty. But I think I've been wrong in the following way. And I told my young students this. I said, really, who can see that far into the future? I mean, I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years. In fact, I don't even have clarity about five years. And I shared with them that Danny Kahneman, who's um, um, someone we both admire and whom I just adore, frankly. I remember uh, having a conversation with him not too long ago where I was like, Danny, like, you know, I was just sort of plotting this and planning this and how are we going to make behavioral science advance? And he reminded me that you can only see like maybe, maybe two, possibly three, but three is a lot, like three years into the future, because then there's so much uncertainty, like depending on what happens next year is going to change where I want to go. And so you kind of can't map out your entire journey in decades. And what I said to my students is what I'll say to you now is like, I think I was wrong. Like, yes, goals are hierarchical. Yes, it is wonderful to have some kind of guiding star, or even you could think about like navigating by some constellation. You're like, my values are benevolence and excellence. Okay, I want to move in that direction. But I think what that allows you to do is say, but I don't know where I need to be 10 years from now. I don't need no five. I know I'm moving in that general direction. And I know I need some kind of plan for the next year or two. And then between my ultimate general direction and this, there's a huge amount of freedom and and uncertainty. And um, and I'm not going to try to map it all out. It's not possible. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, both you and I spent time at McKinsey. And uh, back in those days, I mean, there was a lot of those strategic planning going on, right? Which was like <laughs> three-year plans, five-year plans, and, and all of that in organizations. And and then after that, you know, I went to do a startup. And, uh, and then you and I both have been doing entrepreneurial things a little bit, right? in addition to our academic work. And I've come to the same conclusion with regard to even the organizational aspect, not just the individual aspect, that like we kind of have to like dispense a little bit with that old way of like thinking of things in a very programmatic way and a very research first and then planning and then action. Linear. Like, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, maybe for exam, like, I mean, how, how, you have to have a plan for at least the next year or two or maybe three, depending on how complex and large the organization is. Or, But really, when you start getting beyond two or three years, who knows? Maybe knows? the internet will happen or like maybe like, you know, global politics will shift or wh- whatever it is you can't anticipate. So I do think though, to your point though, like knowing your core values, right? Like that that's what I said to the students of the last day of class. I said, navigate by the stars, right? You cannot have a map that says in, you know, 2021, I'll do 2031, I'll be here, 2004. You can't have that kind of map, but you can navigate by the stars and the stars are your core values and your, and your deepest personal interests. And there are many places that you could get navigating by those stars. And maybe it'll be director at McKinsey, and maybe it'll be a professor, maybe it'll be a nonprofit leader. So yes, of course, navigate by something, but don't try to map it all out with precision second, third, fourth decade from now. I like that, navigating by the stars. So you've taught this class at uh, at UPenn to the undergraduates uh, based on your work. Um, and any other lessons or learnings for us about um, how to really support ourselves and others in our journey towards uh, a flourishing and you know thriving life with uh, what you've learned through your interactions with, uh, with these undergraduates? 
I'll share something that is surprising to me and um, is consistently true. When I ask my students to evaluate themselves on their passion and their perseverance for long-term goals, and actually when I look at data that's also collected from research studies, I consistently find that people are higher in perseverance than they are in passion. And it's a little non-intuitive because you would think like, what's so hard about passion? It's just doing what you want to do, right? And, and the perseverance thing sounds harder, you know, deliberate practice every day, being resilient, in the face of setbacks and obstacles, taking negative feedback. But I think for many of us, maybe in this conversation together, when you hear that many people struggle more with the direction they're going than the determination and following it, like I think it will resonate with a lot of people. I certainly felt that way for many, many years in my life. I would say from 22 to 32, I was really lost in a way. I didn't, I didn't know what direction to go in, but I was always a hard worker. So I, I almost prayed for someone just to tell me what to do because I, I, I could easily work 70 hours doing it. I just didn't know where to start. And so I would say that that's, if that's some comfort to people who think like, oh gosh, yeah, I'm a hard worker. I have a great work ethic. I, I take negative feedback, but I'm still somewhat paralyzed of trying to figure out where to set off on my journey. Then you're like a lot of people, including me. And the second thing is like, you know, prescriptively, my recommendation is as many entrepreneurs or say, just go anywhere, like just take in any step, because no matter what you do, even if you went exactly in the opposite direction, by taking the step you would learn, and then you'd be like, oh, it's like when your GPS recalculates, it's like, oh, oh, recalculating, you know, but the only mistake you can make is to not move. And the only mistake is to not move because then you won't learn anything. And then you will kind of guarantee that you won't get anywhere. You know, when you just share that, it reminds me of the story of Catherine Graham, the uh, former publisher of the Washington Post. Washington Post. Yeah. Uh, one of my students brought her up to me about a decade ago, and I, I became such a fan of hers by reading her personal memoirs. And you know, I, I read I mean, it too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, what a story, right? And like, uh, that moment where her husband commits suicide, she has to take on this family heirloom, she wants to uh, continue to keep it in the family, people expect her as a woman to have to sell it because women weren't active in leadership roles in business that time. And she didn't know anything about journalism, nor about running a business, but she leaned in. And she talks about how, right, like she had so much fear and apprehension. And, and she had to practice at home, like learning how to say, like, at that time, Merry Christmas to her kids, yeah. to, like, to figure out what to say in the in the newsroom and all of that. But but she kept taking that one step, that one step, that one step. Yeah. And then making sure that you're okay with all the missteps, you know, like, if you're a young person, and you go off and you do an internship, and you absolutely hate it, that's great. Look how much you learned. You learned that you didn't want to do that. You, you learned that you didn't want to have a boss like that. You learned that you didn't want to become a boss like that. A lot of the um, remarkable women and men that I study will say things um, like one I'm just thinking of. She was, a, she, was, she was a chef, like a sous chef. And she basically started this apron company. And now it's like a multi-million dollar brand. And she just wrote a book. Her name is Ellen Marie Bennett. And she said, um, dream first, details later. And I think for, for all of us to say like, yeah, take that step. It could be the right step. It's probably not. It could be the wrong step. It could be exactly the wrong step. But do it first, then figure it out, and then like recalculate. And I, I think that so many very smart and perfectionistic people don't really like that messiness. But if you can at least recognize that that's pretty much the only way there is to like get anywhere, then maybe it will like incline you to, um, to em embrace it a, a little more comfortably than you would otherwise. How oh, beautiful. Can I use that as a pivot point to just talk to our audience and say, 
folks, based on what Angela just said, this idea about dream first and then details later, and as coming from from that uh, you know person, uh, what was her name uh, that you? Yeah, Ellen Marie Bennett, and I think Ellen her Marie I think her book is on the bestseller list right now. So I, okay, it's, a, it's a great book. By yeah, the way. awesome. So um, I want to I want to turn to a more kind of like meta issue. So you are part of a pioneering early twenty first century community of psychologists that are really advancing this field in a direction that is giving us so much more deeper insight about human nature. And I would say what's also really cool and remarkable to me is that given given my early interest in spirituality, you're actually helping build the, uh, bring these two disciplines closer to each other because so much of what uh, is emerging from positive psychology are the kinds of virtues and values and graces that have been, for the most part, part of like world traditions in ancient times, kindness, compassion, resilience. Humility, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so that's beautiful that now we have a scientific lens through which to view it, to unpack it and really define it more carefully and to have tests and measures for it and also understand like how to go about doing it and also eliminate some of the chaff from the wheat, right? Like to, to kind of like get to the core and all Try. of that. Yeah, yeah. So that's great, right? But like you're saying, there are stumbles and failures along the way towards ultimate insight. And if the psychology of 100 years ago, we look at it today and we say like, oh, wow, like there's so much of what they didn't know back then. I'm guessing that a psychology of 100 years from now, you know, if we keep doing all the good work, we look at us and say like, there's so much these guys didn't know what they're doing, right? And so we have this thing called the replication crisis that is happening right now where some of the psychology of the past is being called into question by some new studies or meta studies and all that people are doing. And some of the greatest, like strongest, most noted pillars, right, of this discipline are kind of a little bit more shaken up. And I know you faced a little bit of that in the world of grid as well. Can you weigh in on that? Like what is going on and how would you guide someone who is both benefiting from a lot, is really interested in tapping into the latest wisdom in psychology to also stay a little bit mindful and careful and discriminating in the manner in which they assimilate this discipline. Yeah, the 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 replication crisis is like, these are the growing pains of science uh, maturing. And the specific criticism is that some of the things that we published as scientists and said, hey, these are the findings and they're more or less facts. I mean, I guess scientists would always put air quotes around facts, like facts until proven that they're not. Like, it's not true. So one of the famous ones in psychology is, for example, the ego depletion effect, which is that when people do something that's very hard, like they're trying to solve problems, but they're impossible. And then you give them something else to do, like a proofreading task, that they're actually starting to get worse on that second task. And the idea, which is very sexy, is that your self-control runs out like fuel, which is sort of like the tank gets empty. And that effect looks not to be nearly as big as it was thought to be, and some would argue like there really is no effect. It's like an illusion. Of so that's one example. In my own domain with grit, some would argue that like when you really properly control in statistical ways, like for things that like grit really doesn't have actually an effect on achievement. Of course, as a scientist, I then have to process all of this on two levels. One is my own work, and the second one is at a meta level. In my own work, I would say like, oh, but I pre-registered a meta-analysis with over 10,000 people over 10 years, and looked and like I can say to you that I think that the basic finding in my own research which is like when people have a tendency to work really hard over long periods in a consistent direction that if you ask me like does it really predict achievement I would say yes based on my pre-registered replicated findings I would say yes however I would
would have put a semicolon in that. The amount of the, let me say it in a way that like, like less jargony, how powerful a predictor is grit or anything else that scientists study, but I'll just say grit, like not as powerful as you might think. In other words, the ability to predict how successful someone is going to be, a college applicant, somebody you hire, a young athlete is um, for anything actually, like it's extremely um, uh, like the, how much we can really predict is like this and how much is not predicted is like that. So I think I want to say, I think my results replicate, but I think um, now this begins to get into the meta and I'll just pause here because we can't talk about this forever is that one of the very humbling things that we have to recognize as scientists is that no matter what it is growth mindset big five conscientiousness grit all of these things that psychological and behavioral science have yielded nudges power of like the kind of nudges that behavioral economists study are they real i think in most cases yes but the effects are very small and i think the reason why and i'll end with this is that human beings are extremely complex and the world is complex complex and you put together the complexity of an individual with the complexity of the world and then you say like yeah but if i know their grit score can i predict whether they're gonna you know become a nobel laureate it's like not very well right i sympathize with that i mean there is on the one hand the scientific temperament of wanting to in a Descartian kind of way like break things down into logical little mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive variables and factors and all of that but on the other hand there might be this gestalt of who knows the millions of different interacting things that ultimately make us who we are and the conditions and the outcomes right i guess that's the beautiful puzzle that uh, we're all being invited here to solve for so and so, i think instead of being maybe there was a point in history maybe for most most of human history either you thought like a scientist or you thought more like an artist or so like you know on one hand you're like i think we're now in the 21st century and i think the people who are attracted to you know this kind of conversation would want to do both they would want to read the science they want to understand how the vaccine was developed and randomized control trials and and yet they would also like looking at philosophy and reading poetry and understanding that the, the humility in which we would say that any of these ways of trying to understand the universe and ourselves they're all limited. It doesn't mean we should throw out one or throw out the other, but I think just recognizing the limits of any way of trying to understand ourselves um, is useful. And I think in the 21st century, more and more people will want to think like a scientist, but also think like a philosopher and also understand the spiritual traditions have something to offer and art and music and poetry and more. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. He, he once said, he said, um, study the art in science. And he said, then study the science and art and approach <laughs> everything as in everything connects to everything. <laughs> you know, everything connects to everything. And that's what you've said here. Beautiful. One of the maybe steps in that direction that I see emerging today in, in your field of psychology, I say yours because I'm more a consumer of it. I'm more of a packager of it. You know, I take the good work that scientists like you are doing and then kind of like seek to bring it into a practical form for leadership and organizations and beyond. But one of those, I think, is this notion that, you know, you might call like fusing opposites. In other words, not to think about qualities in very monolithic terms that the right thing to do is X. Either or, but more of right? like kind of dialectic or I, I, I mean, I'm yeah, not yeah. using that word, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you did that so beautifully 
beautifully in your book when you spoke about parenting, right? And, and you spoke about what's the right way to parent. It is, is it to be like a demanding kind of parent or is it to be more like a supportive kind of parent? And then you emerge with this conclusion. Can you share that with the, with, with the audience? About a century ago, a very famous psychologist um, by the name of Watson had this idea that, you know, really good parenting was extremely demanding and not very supportive. And that would be the way to raise children who were strong, uh, disciplined, um, productive people. But but I think one of the many reasons why that is bad advice for parents is that when we think supportive, demanding, the natural thing is to think either or, and then to just try to find the magic point on the continuum, 70% this, 30%, is it 40, 60, is it 90, 10? And the, it's a false choice because it is possible to be supportive maximally and actually maximally demanding because they're not opposites. Supportiveness, actually, um, there's lots of research now on parenting and parenting styles, looks like two things. It's it's warmth and caring. That's one thing. And it's also respect for, for the autonomy of your child. And so you can be maximally supportive in that you love your kid more than anything. And you really respect them as independent people who may disagree with you and want to go their own way. At the same time, you can be extremely demanding in the sense that you, you hold your children to high standards morally or in other ways as well. And so you don't have to think, Either I should be a supportive parent or I should be a demanding parent. You don't even have to think like, well, I'm going to be 30, 70. You could be 100, 100, right? Like you could be that. And that is actually, I think, um, research suggests. And also I think, you know, by extension, um, leadership is like parenting in so many ways that to be a great leader, to be a great parent is to be someone who the people who are following you and that you're would say like, this person truly cares about me. They completely respect me. And wow, they're tough. They are, they keep holding me to a higher standard and they keep making me grow. So I think that's one sense in which this either or is wrong and that the answer really is both. And now executing that's not easy, but at least it gives you a sense of what you're looking to achieve as a, as a parent or as a leader. Asha, could you maybe to close out, share with us as you look in the years ahead at a time when humanity is is troubled right it's going through a perfect storm in so many regards you know what's your big dream um i'm wearing this vest that says character lab and and um if you want to visit me you can come to characterlab.org and i will say this every culture and every spiritual tradition has said that it's important to try to be a good person to live a good life for yourself and others at the same time. And that to me is what character is. It's being honest and kind, grateful and generous, curious, creative, humble, persistent, disciplined, you know, and I, I guess I would say this, my dream and my hope is that because we know that there is science behind every single one of those elements that I mentioned, now, all of these spiritual traditions from around the world have been saying this is important. Maybe in the 21st century, and I know it seems improbable given the very current circumstances in which we're, maybe we could get even better and more efficient at developing our character. And I think that's what will, you know, it's a very old fashioned concept in a way, but I think I imagine a future where we could each of us say like, I want, I'm going to be more honest and more kind, more generous, more grateful, more curious, more humble, more gritty, more self-disciplined, 
and all the rest. So beautiful, Angela. It reminds me of a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, character building begins in infancy and ends only at death. Isn't that <laughs> Wonderful. And I'm a big Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt fan. So Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, I am, I, so am I. I've actually been <laughs> deeply in love with her recently, but I was working on some part of her in my book. I, I need to let you go, though, but we will look forward to having our paths cross again, both Absolutely. between us, but also with our community. I'm so grateful, as I know all of us, Angela, to have you with us today. Uh, Godspeed, stay well, and do do continue to do this beautiful work that you're doing. Okay, you so until much. next time. Yeah.